two. Hello, welcome to the Funky Collective. We're back, baby. All right, episode 104, East of Eden. Now, this was recorded earlier than it will be released because I've decided to record things ahead of time and release them so I don't have to miss out if I'm feeling tired one day or whatever. This is George, a.k.a. Spike Green, and we're going to review East of Eden from 1955, James Dean's first ever starring role, major starring role after four minor roles. And today we have Aaron with me, my friend Aaron, who goes by the name... Film Reject. Aaron? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Film Geek Collective. Nice to meet you all. And that's Aaron for you. Now, before we get into things, I think that we should just generally, you know, since it's a two-person discussion, I'm going to say there are going to be spoilers for the movie. However, I think that the discussion is probably going to be clean, you know, mostly clean, maybe some parental guidance, but we're not going to have any of the dirty jokes we were sharing before the podcast. Um, You know, (laughs) it's... Some people say dirty jokes, but none of that in this particular podcast. We're not reviewing, like, uh, Superbad or anything at the moment. So, yeah, I'm going to give shout-outs to Tessie Cat, Elsie Cool, Film Mama Tick, Zach Ascott, Real Sharks Podcast, that gay Ribishaku, Cinema this Podcast, Schlock Luster Video, Apple Park Films, The Chris Watt, Autistic in Melbourne, Naked Airplane, Still Mellow, Heavenly Imagine, Contrera, Rose Begali, La- <coughs> Shoot. Rose Begali, Larry1937, 2621, Talk Me Into, Films with Amy, Zeus, Creative Fay, Caution Spoilers, um, JGWR, um, uh, well, that's the at, I'm not sure what your name will be by the time this episode releases, your yep, screen name, uh, Classic Blonde, Elsot One, and finally Eric Sluss. Enjoy. Okay, so, to start, let me just go with another intro to bring in the music. So, yeah, I've been deciding to include a bit more music in the podcast. Um, you know, not that we can hear it during recording, but that's okay. This was the most ambitious novel of John Steinbeck, many people said. And, uh, Aaron, do you know how much this made at the box office? It made about, like, $5 million at the box office worldwide, I think. And adjust that for inflation, because this was 1955 and that sort of thing. But uh, there was also a 1981 version. And uh, did you know James Dean and Paul Newman did a screen test together for the movie? But only part of it can be found online. However, James Dean's the livelier one. I mean, he was an actor with such a waste of potential because he had a good movie. Uh, well, I haven't seen his other ones yet, but you've, you can make a testament that, you know, he's been good in his other stuff too. But yeah, James Dean was very popular back in his day recording um, all of three of his films. And yes, he only ever made three, though we'll mention the reason why later. Yes. Um, did you know that Nicolas Cage, people, did you know that Nicolas Cage got into acting because of James Dean? He admitted this in a 2014 interview. In terms of acting styles, this used the actor studio's quote-unquote method, which was at the height of popularity at the time. Interrupting was pervasive and there are a bunch of other things to go with that. Um, it was sometimes a bit overwrought, you know, apparently the quote, the famous quote that's now mean from the room, you're tearing me apart, is also in Rebel Without a Cause. I still got to catch up with those two. The average shot length, uh, some shots are longer than others for more complicated reasons than I can get, that I can't really get into right now. But the average shot length here is about 10 seconds, according to the Blu-ray. So, yeah, this is the only film of his James Dean saw in his entirety. Now, I don't want to take over too much. So, Aaron, you got any facts? Yep. In case you didn't know, but on set, James Dean got drunk before filming the rooftop scene between Cal and Abra. Uh, Abra. Wasn't it Abra? Yeah, I think so, actually. Anyway, that's the name of a character. I know it sounds weird, but that's the name. 
Yeah, it almost reminded me of, you know, Abracadabra maybe or Abba or, or something like that, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <clears throat> during production, James Dean resisted the makeup. He snuck to the bathroom, physically rubbed it off. An emotional side of James Dean would often take over. He felt such emotion he would frequently cry. You could see, you could see about two takes of this in the actual film itself. Um, IMDb said that one was left in when I was researching and various sources said maybe one, but I counted two. So yeah, some cast and crew deemed James unprofessional due to him frequently improvising away from the script. Still, um, some of the takes made it in. So what did you think of the fact that James didn't memorize the script? Do you think it made the film better or, or worse maybe? I don't know exactly how it would have been. Maybe he did it because for a good cause or I don't know, but... To me, I think it's fine how it, at least the script for the film turned out, at least to me. Yeah. I think that, personally, I think that the, the movie felt its length, but it was still interesting at the same time. What with the... We're, we're heavy into spoiler territory now. We may just casually reveal spoilers because we just warned you guys, but... Uh, spoiler territory. Yes. All right. You know, it's worth noting that... Uh, James Dean was sent to Palm Springs, California. You know, he would resemble a quote-unquote real farm boy. James Dean hated this, but he got a tan, a haircut, quite a few pounds. He consumed a pint of cream daily. As for Ilya Kazan, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, as for the director's side of things, he had a father similar to one in the film, and he used that for inspiration. He gave James Dean creative freedom, approaching the character however he wanted, but as any good director should, he stopped James Dean from disrespecting the cast or crew or whatever. I mean, he did love actors, it's worth noting. You know, so, uh, you know, what do you particularly like about James Dean's acting style, Aaron? Well, the fact that he always puts on a great show in his performance in his films and he's always, well, trying to look good for the ladies. <laughs> well, you could say that. <laughs> uh, he is pretty handsome. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, um, it's uh, James Dean was a bit, I don't know if Marlon Brando was an inspiration or not. It seemed to be Marlon Brando was maybe a little bit of an inspiration because contemporaneous critics thought that, uh, you know, he was a bit too much Marlon Brando's acting style. Uh, he even, you know, went messed with it. But that's, I applaud James Dean for doing that. He did quite well, in my opinion, and he wasn't excessively mean or anything. Um, but Jack L. Warner, who was then studio boss of Warner Brothers, reacted furiously. He was like, that little bastard better get out of the trailer or else. I know he probably spoke in an American accent instead of my thick Aussie accent, you know. But uh, yeah. So yeah, any facts that uh, you've got in your notes, Aaron? Uh, yes. The director, Isola Kanzan, first toyed with the idea Ilya of- Kazan, sorry. Um, yeah, Kazan, sorry. I, I tried pronouncing of casting Malaren Barado as Cal and Mongon- Montgomery Clift as Aaron, but at 30 and 34 years old respectively, they were simply too old to play John Steinbeck's teenage brothers. Well, yeah, well, there's there's been a bit of a history of, uh, I think Dawson's Creek does this, I hate Dawson's Creek personally, but that, <coughs> that actually has a 20, 30-something adults playing teenagers when they're clearly too old to do that. You know, Greece has that too and stuff. So, uh, yeah, uh, I was thinking that it's also very interesting that the production borrowed an actual Ferris wheel and took it to the Warner Brothers lot. The director adapted only the second half of the book, omitting the father's story. 
So yeah, John Steinbeck, also who wrote Of Mice and Men and The Grapes of Wrath, wrote the original book for East of Eden. And in fact, him and the director were friends dating back to then writing 1952's Viva Zapata. Sorry, Zapata. Um, yeah, John Steinbeck really enjoyed what East of Eden ultimately became. Now, I don't read much, but um, I don't know. Books were never really my thing. I know they're other people's things, but uh, do you read much, Aaron? Unlike George, I actually do read books. Um, sometimes, you know, like I have so many books that I almost don't even get time to read them, but there are times where I do read them because well, I love storytelling, good stories at least, of course. Of course, yeah, yeah. I was thinking, um, I think I ultimately myself prefer movies. I mean, I know books have their appeal. I've read a few maybe. I think one of the Harry Potters or one of the Narnias. But still, I reckon that movies can buy music and and theatre and acting and, you know, you know, you probably know what I mean by theatre. Um, but, you know, it also combines dialogue and, and you know, it can show things. The book has to have a bit of a longer description or even a shorter description still requires words, you know, and just a simple image sometimes translates things a bit better, you know. Do you agree? Yep. I see what George is saying. It's I, He does have a point. I mean, after all, when you are watching a movie, it's a much more... Uh, and when you see a film bring to life one of your favourite books in a story, like, I don't know, like Lord of the Rings, for, per se, it really does tell the story really well and dynamic as well, just as at least as much as it can, and really does make it, and I fall into this very cool experience of this world that, um, that the writer has um, created, and... It's good to see your favourite creations up on the big screens. It's even the same like with the Marvel characters. Oh, yeah, the Marvel character. Oh, I just tell me about it. I love seeing superheroes on the screen, but I can't get too distracted or off track with the superheroes and all that. But, uh, you know, I would love to mention the superheroes maybe another time. I mentioned them way back, like in the single-digit episodes, I reckon. Um, so, yeah, speaking of the visuals, John Steinbeck really enjoyed what East of Eden ultimately became. Um, in the film itself, it, the director made green a dominant colour. You see, it was his first in colour he'd previously done on the waterfront, A Streetcar Named Desire. That's another one I've got to catch up on, Streetcar Named Desire. On the waterfront's pretty good. Now, with the widescreen cinemascope process, it was somewhat new at the time. For tech heads, the early aspect ratio was 255 to 1, which this film was presented in. A little tiny bit wider than, say, you know, uh, most Marvel films. It La La Land. La La Land was a bit wider. So later the standard would become 235 to 1. <clears throat> Emphasis on 3, obviously. Scope is a category for screen shapes named after CinemaScope. You know, scope formats to wider formats include 220 to 1, like Lawrence of Arabia, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Sound of Music, you know, mainly for that 70 millimeter things that were shot on the highest quality film stock possible. 276 to 1, as in the ultra-wide format that Ben-Hur used, and also the ones mentioned before. Now, on a side note, 235 to 1 would change to 239 to 1 in 1970 after CinemaScope had fallen out of popular use. There were technical challenges for CinemaScope. Well, Warner Brothers' character development said keep the camera six feet away, but uh, the director pushed it in a bit further as to make the screen distort at the edges, a common problem with the process. Now, this distortion was ultimately utilised for drama, and some shots were even tilted, as such as during an integral Bible reading, and that was a good scene, wasn't it? Sure was. Oh, yeah. I just, I just love the way they use those Dutch angles and, you know... The fact that the characters are a little bit off-centre. I just, I really like that visually about the movie, that it's not afraid to experiment a bit. Yeah, 
especially when they're out in the fields or that scene where there's a scene where um James Dean's character Cal and his brother and his father and even well, um his future girlfriend I guess you could say all right it, the scenery really does look nice and and most of it looks so real and it feels real too that's what's so great about it Oh, definitely. I mean, it it definitely feels real for the period that it was made in. John Steinbeck really had a talent for that, in my opinion. Uh, I I mean, I know I only read of Mice and Men, but still, you could really feel like you were in that time period that he described. And it really does feel old and and classy, I guess. And it really does, and you really do get that countryside feel to it. It's that's what's so nice about it. Yeah. So, uh, did you know that also? Uh, the John Steinbeck stayed away from the set as not to intimidate or add unnecessary pressure to the 10-week schedule. Um, so, you know, he ended up loving it anyway. Some authors, I mean, some directors aren't so lucky. But, you know, one film that does, I'm just going to briefly put an aside here, but one film that absolutely feels real to me is Alien. The way that everything, the actors actually sweat and spurt blood and, you know, there's, there's smoke in places and actors talk over each other and the atmosphere is just... I know it goes for a different approach, but there's grimy and run down and, you know, just something relatable, something lived in, you know. I, I, think, that, uh, I think that a more industrial setting is perhaps more relatable to this current generation than a countryside is, but a countryside's still nice. What do you think? Yeah, it's still nice. And as George was kind of saying to you before about aliens it's kind of the same thing i guess you could say about jurassic park as well because at least back then the dinosaurs looked very real they felt very real real they felt like actual well you felt like you were at an actual dinosaur zoo park type place yeah crazy um sorry i was just uh you know i i apologize am i am i letting you speak enough do you want to say anything oh oh it's all right i'm fine okay because this yeah all right, so uh, composer Leonard Rosenman wrote a bit of the score before filming, so actress Julie Harris is heard humming bits of it fairly early on. So, did you know that Timothy Carey played a small part as a bouncer? Ilya Kazan, being a dedicated pacifist, witnessed such behaviour from Timothy Carey that somehow compelled him to attack him. It's the only time Ilya Kazan has done such a thing. And also, did you know that uh, not only was this John... No, sorry, was, not only was this Ilya Kazan's first colour film, it was his first widescreen, like, proper widescreen film. I mean, that counts for tech heads from 166 onwards, in my opinion. You may debate that with me if you're, like, a widescreen fan or something like that. You know, that's okay. Debate is... Friendly debate is what I'm about. Um, you know, um, the previous years on the waterfront was made for uh, 4 by 3 166 to 1 and 185 to 1 but 185 to 1 made that a little cropped and that i guess was his practice run for something so wide such as east of eden you know so yeah and uh, also the film was technically industry professionals say it was in the can because they were shooting on film back then in the can meaning you know hey we we we've prepped it but it was prepped in 1954 technically it it did premiere in 1955, but it was technically finished in 1954. So there is a bit of a debate in the jury amongst uh, what year that movie is. So, yeah. So how does this stack up to other 50s films, the ones you've seen? 
So far, this, at least as far as I'm concerned, because I haven't really seen any f- too many 50s films. Please forgive me, audience. That's okay. Um, but still, so far, things, of course, like East of Eden and James Dean's two other films, which we'll, we'll talk about later, um, is well, I seem to enjoy quite a bit. Well, wait a minute. We're, we're talking about East of Eden in this one. Yeah, I know. Um, East of Eden, I, I like so much. It, it It's good, but out of all of James Dean's films, it's probably my least favourite. Yeah. Technically, he did have four cameos, like minor, minor, minor roles, but I forget what the names of the movies were because, you know, I didn't want to get too off track with things, that's all. So uh, Ilya Kazan embraced Cinemascope. I was discussing Cinemascope, um, but he embraced it ultimately. His favourite shot of the film was achieved using this composition, this shape for composition, a train vanishing behind the railroad station where the camera goes past the building. But as it approaches mountains, the in the distance, the train's approaching the mountains, it comes back much smaller. Another shot he liked was when Cal and uh, Abra, Abra, I, I kind of forget how to pronounce that too, I apologise. Cal. Cal and, uh, yeah, I was fine with Cal, but uh, Abra, I think it was Abra, Abracadabra. <laughs> she has a weird name. Yeah, but that's okay. I like weird names. But anyway, they hid from the camera view behind a willow tree. You could hear them, but their feet were the only thing showing. And what I didn't expect for a film so short, a film under two hours, is that there's no intermission or exit music, but there is an overture that lasts a whole three minutes. And, you know, I I just think overtures, they should really bring overtures back. And if they don't bring overtures back, then bring back short subjects before the movie, you know, like Pixar used to do, you know? Yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah. What else? So, you know, Aaron took a bunch of notes too, and uh, here we go. So, uh, ironically, the youthful-looking Paul Newman, who was one year Brando's junior, was a finalist for the part of Carl, who eventually was played by Newman's friend, James Dean. Dean was several years younger than Newman. So, uh, let's see. What about memorable scenes, Aaron? Aaron and Abra, who are... Boyfriend and girlfriend, and yes, I know that's the name of one of the characters in the movie. That's just also like your me. Name. <laughs> yep. Talk about how Cal looks at them like an animal. They say it's scary. Then Cal loses his cool, right? His cool, and starts throwing the, their ice out of the barn. Hmm. There was a there was another word in the notes, but since this movie is relatively clean, we had to clean it up for a clean audience. But usually, my podcast, I have no issue with that. It's all good, guys. Anyway, continuing. Kel asks his dad about, is it true that his mum ever died? His dad said he heard that she went to live in the east somewhere and left him and Aaron when they were born. After their mother left them, his father never heard from her again. And the sheriff shows a photo of his percents on the wedding day. And the sheriff... Parents. T- sorry. Um, parents. Sorry, it said percents in the notes. Sorry about that. Uh, so yeah, the sheriff tells Cal that his mother shot his father. Very shocking reveal. That was actually quite well executed, don't you reckon? Oh yeah, very, very twisted part of of, of about their mother. All right. Cal and uh, Abra have their first bit of chemistry together. Cal's family's ice melts on the train. It's a big problem for Cal and his family. Cal wants to help his dad by getting him five thousand smackaroonies or dollars. <laughs> Cal goes to his mother's place to ask his mother for $5,000 to pay his father back. And Cal's mother talks about how his father 
was always holding her back, keeping her to himself, and she shot him because he tried to stop her. And there is one scene in the movie that we both found very weird. It's on screen. Most of the background's all, you know, s- yeah. s- sort of blacked out yeah. a bit. One scene of the movie that I find very weird is that the screen, most of the of the background is dark. But then there's a beam of light that's pointing from the right to the left almost. Yeah, onto the left side of the screen. It looks very weird to me. Very interesting that film the filmmakers put that in the movie. I don't know why, but... It's nothing that I've ever seen in any 50s movie. I was thinking it'd make sense for a stagey sort of thing. If you were on the stage, it'd make sense to put like a spotlight or whatever like that. But in a in a movie, like this wasn't overtly that stylized. I mean, it kind of was with the distortion at the edges, but you know. <laughs> Maybe that's where Greatest Showman got it from. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just made that connection. Wow. Uh, yeah, but it's especially weird because East of Eden's not a musical, though. Yeah. Definitely not a music, just musical. More like a drama, really. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that uh, there's op- there's another... This was more common in the era, but obvious rear projection behind James Dean, who sits on top of a train. And that, you know, uh, as I was just mentioning, Cinemascope made the edges appear thin and distorted. Don't worry, I'll get back to that. Uh, I'll get back to the memorable, memorable scenes. We're just sort of going through all the notes at the same time. So uh, James Dean in the same shot uh, that the old man's at the far left appearing thin, distorted. You know, he's doing incidental activity. It's always good to make your actors busy in in some sort of way. Otherwise, the scene just appears too static. You know, have maybe two actors walk left, two actors walk right or whatever. Whatever you need to do, you know, to make it look more real. So, yeah, the very bright lighting, colour film stock at the time had to be overlit. And so there were some weird instances of lighting in this movie. Definitely. Definitely weird lighting in this movie. Hmm. So what other memorable scenes have we got that you'd like to talk about? And there's one part that I also find pretty, um, well, I guess, awesome. And a man throws something at this German man's shop window. So a man throws something through... um, the, this German man's window. I don't think that's an awesome moment. I think that's meant to be sad. Oh, well, still, like, this is all the scenes that I find, well, at least interesting, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. I'm just trying to, you know. Go but still, in an age where they generalised people as, you know, the Germans and all that and countries and stuff. Because this actually took place during World War One as well. I yeah, should, we should I, mention. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was I was still surprised that they showed a bit of a sim a, a slightly sympathetic portrayal for this era of film. You know, because after World War Two, this would have released after World War Two technically, and you know they'd just been the Nazis and all that. You know. Yeah, and besides, when you see later on in this film, you will kind of feel very sad and sorry for the German men because for the German guy because. He doesn't really get the respect that he needs. And unfortunately, back then, racism was well still quite a big problem back then. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, quite a few Germans were against the Nazis, if I remember correctly. So uh, also, uh, I think that, uh, let's see, I should mention the Dutch angles in this movie. Um, if you don't know, guys, it, the Dutch angles are where it's like tilted diagonally almost. 
like that scene where that scene where Cal's reading from the Bible, he reads the numbers and he's gaining back control because the other guy's telling him not to say about the numbers. And, you know, the hint of, of James Dean's character Cal losing control was having wordlessly turn the book back open. He was about to close it. He was about to get the power. But no, he he respects the man too much. He opens the book. And that man who he's facing has an excellent quote in that scene. Man has a choice. That's where he's different from an animal. You don't listen. You'll never remember. So, yeah. And also they frames the characters off-center. I think the, the man more than James Dean, you know. Interesting composition choices there, you know. So what other memorable scenes would you like to talk about here? Abra talks to Kel about the f- that she doesn't really seem to know if Aaron loves her anymore because she says that lately she hasn't been giving that he hasn't been giving any attention to her so far or anything like that. And she's just, I don't know, worried about him, I guess. She just wants to ask Cal if if he thinks that his brother really still loves her. And so this has a bit of, this kind of, this is like a second moment where, or yeah, where James D- Dean's character, um, Cal and Abra talk to each other and start to build on their chemistry together on mm. on a Ferris wheel, which is kind of a common thing in love stories if you think about it. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, yeah, I I know of at least one movie that's done that uh, quite recently, a quite popular teen movie. To to avoid spoilers, I won't say which one. But uh, yeah, I think that uh, I was talking about the lighting earlier, and there's a shot in the shadows, still lit by the back of the bar, but you know their faces are partially lit, considering that the deer head on the wall is barely visible. I still think that uh, the lighting was highly unusual for an era where you needed almost blinding light, you know, not blind. Like I, I'm not sure if it was actually blinding. I might be exaggerating, but uh, yeah. Speaking actually of one of those bar shots, there's one part where um, I won't go into at least a bit of spoils, but where Cal sees someone very, someone, someone very special that he's been looking f- for. for. This is a spoiler analysis. Go ahead. Spoil. Um, looking for, so he goes to see his he after he just sees his mother for the first time in years, um, she says, "Get him out of here! Get him out of here!" to someone, and so a whole bunch of people get him out of here. But as that scene is happening through a hallway or yeah, down a hallway, there's just one part of the screen screen where it's all weird and blurry for at least one split second. But then after a while, it just goes back to normal again. Mm. I found that very strange and weird as well. I think that might have been a camera anomaly. I mean, you know, I don't I don't know too much about exactly how Cinemascope might have worked in terms of if it blurs or not, but that might have been the process, maybe. I'm I'm just gonna take a guess there. But uh if it's not that, then maybe it was just a technical error. Because it blurs for a good two seconds. <laughs> you know? And uh yeah. I mentioned that uh, the director really did like uh his use of colour in this movie, so he really tried to emphasise green in the fields. But other than that, this one scene where the yellows and the flowers almost take over. And also, for a film with an average shot length of 10 seconds, there are a couple of, sorry, there are a couple of somewhat extended still shots of conversations that barely move or maybe move a little bit. Or, you know, there's one tracking shot with, early on with uh, Cal... Aaron and uh, and uh, Abra. Abra, yeah, <laughs> thanks. You're so yeah, I think that uh, 
the, there's a general rule of show, don't tell in storytelling. The scene where Abra talks about her father is a good verbal account that breaks this rule. But it's initially mysterious why she's telling him this. So that definitely shows something maybe that, that she's starting to trust him, you know, that we may, that they may have a thing, um, maybe. Have a bit of a connection with each other. Yeah. And that, to me, foreshadows the fact that uh, they kiss later on the Ferris wheel. Maybe, you know, still it feels like we're in that field in the middle of a private conversation. And yeah, there's another great scene where it's more on the nose, but sometimes you need an on the nose scene. The scene where he's confronting Kate about shooting his father and, you know, the father wasn't killed, but she says, nobody holds me. He wanted to own me. Nobody tells me what to do. And, you know, again, a bit overwrought, but good acting, definitely. I reckon she really, the actors really put their all into East of Eden, you know. That's right. And the trailer said about Cal's mother that she was a pretty wicked woman, which I agree from what I heard. Mm. Yeah, there was a funny occurrence just before their, just before World War One, uh, in the movie. And there are no war scenes in the movie, obviously. I'm trusting that everyone's seen the movie, so you know that. Um, so. If you haven't, then, of course, as we said before, spoilers. Major spoilers. So, yeah, I thought it was a very funny occurrence. The red stripes and the pants and the hat, the blue jacket, the white shirt. Like, who who basically wears the American flag like that? I thought it was illegal to do that in America. <laughs> George kind of laughed at that a little while ago when we were watching it. He thought it was so funny and goofy. <laughs> they, I mean, there's nothing wrong with loving a country. It's just, you know. It actually, now thinking about it, kind of reminds me of, I don't know, maybe a really bad Captain America villain or something <laughs> i yeah sometimes as a joke i think of creating a guy called uh, captain australia you know just maybe having an australian flag where a, where like uh, a superhero weapon would be <laughs> that'd be funny i reckon but uh yeah i think that uh, there was something in this film that uh, something that said Marlon Brando would never do, that James Dean did do, that separates him a bit from the Marlon Brando stereotype critics like to associate with him at the time. He ran around a field to make kids laugh, but, you know, Marlon Brando takes himself maybe a little bit too seriously to do something like that. He he never really presented the chance to get too goofy, in my opinion. I mean, although saying Krypton instead of Krypton in Superman the movie was pretty goofy. <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, by the way, as George said earlier before, where he said the actors really do give it their all. Yeah, they really do give it their all because one of the one of my favourite performances will probably have to be um, Cal's mother's performance. She really does, in a way, when you hear the stories about his parents, they really are interesting and mysterious because we don't know, at least, of course, at first, why they never wanted to be with each other anymore. I mean, more, sorry. Yeah, definitely. said war. <laughs> so, um, uh, have you got any more notes on memorable scenes? Uh, yes, I Because I'm almost at the end of my notes. <laughs> a horde of people start chasing the German man. From then, earlier that we were mentioning, sorry. Um, <laughs> then... The horde of people start fighting each other. Yeah, start fighting each other. Then Carl beats up his brother Aaron, and Aaron is upset because Carl was with his girlfriend on the Ferris wheel, which we were mentioning... Aaron says to his father on his birthday that him and Abra, had, that they're engaged, but they're all, it's a, oh, it's a lie. I don't think I picked that up. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure because he never proposed to her, so that's why it's a lie. Cal tries to give his father $5,000, $5, but 
his father doesn't accept it. Because he said, he, he appreciates that he's trying to do everything, he appreciates that he, his son is trying to do everything for him because Cal, Cal did this because he wanted to I don't know, show his father what a good son he is because at, at first, what this film explains as well, that he doesn't really feel loved at the first few minutes of the film. He doesn't I don't know, feel accepted into his family. So he, mm. in this film, he really tries his best just to, um, I guess, show his father that he, that he does care about him, that he does care about his business and everything. Like he's just trying everything he can Definitely, family make a living. Definitely, I mean, there are several scenes involving the guy's father that are great. Like, you know, he goes from getting money for him to the father refusing the money to the father dying in his bed, and they really have that special moment, you know. And I basically just summarized that. I apologize if I cut that short. Um, Okay, so uh, you know, we can't take too long on a, norm- on a normal podcast unless it's like something really special, 100th episode, Easter, Christmas, Halloween, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, just as his character, just as the his character's relationship with his father develops, I like how, we, we both like how James Dean went from energetic to reserved, you know. And the well, actually, fact- his brother, because... As oh, the- it was his brother. Okay. Yeah, sorry. As the film progresses as well, his brother Aaron... Of course, at the first few minutes, he starts out really energetic, um, I guess nice, sociable and everything. But then later on, he just starts act very weird, slow, tired, not energetic at all. And he mm. slowly turns into a very different per- person as the film progresses. Oh, definitely. I think James Dean does that to a lesser extent still, though. That's what makes him quite a memorable character in this, too. Yeah. And probably my favourite quote is, uh, you know, my favourite quote in this movie is during the scene where he's seeing his dying father and his father says, if you want to give me a present, give me a good life. That's something I can value. That's and the scene where he rejected the money, though, unfortunately, yeah, from, his, yeah, from that's, his son. Yeah, that scene was a very, very good scene, at, I think, at the end of the movie. And it was probably the lowest point of Cal's, um, of course, of Cal's story. James Dean was supposed to just act negatively, but then he becomes openly emotional. One of the emotional takes that made it into the film, and he's hugging the actor who plays his father, and he's like, Cal! Cal! Because he can't break character, obviously. And uh, and James Dean's character, which is Cal, of course, starts um, he's walking crying, away. unfortunately. And then, at, and then after that... I mean, it's a very emotional moment. Yeah. Crying would just release the emotion, you know? But then Aaron comes along near to him and says, for no reason, like in an absolute mean way, you stay away from her, of course, about his girlfriend, Abra. Mm. You don't ever go near to her again. But then a few moments later, um, Cal's, Cal does something... That. Um, that his father actually told him not to do at the at literally the first few minutes of the film. Yeah. To tell him that his mother was still alive, but then he says, "You know how you, you know how... those made up stories that you and I used to make up that our mother wasn't dead. Well, what if that's actually true?" And then mm. Anne's like, "What the heck are you talking about? This makes no sense." Yeah, I reckon you can have a hook at the beginning or near the beginning, or you can even have a a plot switch hook in the middle, like, hey, the mother's still alive. I'm not sure it was the middle exactly. So Cal takes Aaron to the bar to introduce him to his mother. Cal takes his brother Hmm? to his mum 
at the bar, of course. And as soon as Aaron sees his mother for the first time ever, he yeah, he screams out, No! Because he just falls in absolute shock because he oh, couldn't yeah. believe it that after all these years, it's been one big lie. Mm. And he really does start to lose it so much there. Yeah, but I don't think he lost it just as much as Aaron did in the... When he smashes, sorry, smashes his head through the train glass and laughs like a maniac. And Aaron, real life Aaron, he pointed out that we never see film Aaron again after the train. Yeah, um, that part where he smashes his head and he starts laughing. At first I'm like, he is just literally lost to the plot. He has, it's almost like, I don't know, his humanity in him is just gone. Like it's not there anymore because he's just... As well, a bit after when he was going on the train, we heard that he had a few fights in the bar too and he's just gone absolutely insane. And that train that he went on to was actually, that train was going to take him to pretty much the battlefield where World War I is taking place right now. And of course his father, his brother, everyone else who loves him tries to stop him from getting off the, I mean, yeah, tries to stop him from getting on the train, but it's too late and... As soon as he starts laughing like a maniac, his father just falls in, in, in complete shock. And, mm. and it's just the lowest mo- moment. What I like about that part, though, and what's probably the best moment ever, is that the fact that we don't seem again. is the f- And I almost think to myself when I first saw it that what's so perfect is we never, we never, not once did we ever hear about did he survive? Did he die? And if he did survive, where did he go? What did he do? He must have lost all his memory. What, that's what makes as well f- films so good about... What makes films so great as well is that sometimes, you know, they have a mystery, George, and you don't know what happened and they oh, never definitely. answer it. It's just, it keeps you asking questions. Even the day we... And even still today when we watch those kind of films, we remember those really cool mysteries and we always want to keep on asking those questions. So a random film recommendation, speaking of war, um, one war film I really suggest all of you come to, sorry, well, not, not sorry, um, go to, I meant to say, sorry. But uh, one war film I suggest you go to is uh, Gallipoli from 1981, directed by Peter Weir and starring Mel Gibson, a very, very good Australian war movie that I reckon you guys would like. It depends on your taste, of course. I know not all my listeners, not all our listeners like the same things, you know. But, uh, yeah. We all like our own things. Definitely. So to wrap it up, Aaron, what did you think of the movie overall? I like it. I think it's good. I like, in a way, of course... The setting, the environment that it takes place, the era, and the few Pacific parts, of course, that we've mentioned in memorable scenes, and a bit of the story. Um, of course, I will admit, not one of the greatest stories, but still a good story. Definitely, yeah. So that wraps it up for the oh, film. one more thing as well, mm-hmm. actually. I just wanted to ask. Yeah? What do you think of it, George? Right. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> Rewinding the tape. Be kind and rewind before you return it to the rental place. (laughs) But uh, I actually thought it was a decent movie. You know, it's a a good story. It's maybe, it definitely feels its length. One more thing as well, actually. Sorry, just to wrap it up real quickly as well. The scene where um, you see um, Cal's father in bed. I heard in one part, the doctors mentioned he might live for one more week. Maybe he, he might even die tonight or even for one last year. And it's really sad because 
this is the only moment, and I mean the only scene of the movie besides um, Aaron around, where Cal and and his father really connect, if you know what I mean. Oh, then definitely. That's what I liked about it as well. It's the only scene where they connect. And what's so funny in a way about this scene is that um, this nurse lady comes in, but then James Dean says this out loud, Get out! And w- by the way, when I heard him say that, I thought the scene where Arnold Schwarzenegger says, get out. Yeah, it was a, it was a serious moment in the movie, but the way you just said it, it sounded like Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah, it did actually. <laughs> oh boy. Well, anyway, that, uh, so that we don't run over, you can only record half an hour per recording. So so that we don't, don't run over that. I'm just going to say that's all we have time for here at the Film Geek Collective in episode 104. And I recommend you watch East of Eden for yourself. I think you'll enjoy it. If you haven't uh, accidentally gone through the spoiler section already. Um, but, you know, you can you can still watch a movie and like things, even if you accidentally get things spoiled. I don't know. Anyway, so, yeah, if you want to inspire, create, innovate, electrify, we need your voice because you can change things for the better. Peace out. Peace out. Woo! Woo! <laughs>